there are so many different types of patients. You just mentioned one, like what about the folks who are in wheelchairs? What about people who, who have to take five buses to get to your office? What about the person who can and has ready access to cameras and stable internet? Like there are so many different kinds of patients. So that's the other thing that we're learning now is not, not all patients are created equal. You need as much of a representation as you can. And that's hard. I, admittedly, it's hard. But first step, yes, definitely get a patient involved when you're designing anything that's patient-facing. Welcome to a special edition of Pop Health Week, recorded live at HIMSS 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. Our guest today is Colin Hung, Chief Marketing Officer and Editor at the Healthcare Scene. Colin also serves as host and co-moderator of the popular tweet chat, Healthcare Leaders, also known as hashtag HCLDR. Colin has enjoyed a 20-year career in software and information technology, the last 10 years in the health IT industry. He has helped to design and launch over a dozen health and healthcare-related products, including solutions for infection control, risk management, claims processing, electronic health records, performance improvement, patient feedback, and patient engagement. Colin lives and works in his hometown of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and is actively involved in the healthcare community. Colin is a member of Hacking Health, an organization dedicated to improving healthcare through collaborative innovation. He is a registered professional engineer in the province of Ontario and is passionate about improving healthcare. So, Fred, with that introduction, over to you. Help us catch up with Colin. Thanks so much, Greg. And Colin, welcome to Pop Health Week. Hey, great to be here, Fred. Always want to be on the show. Well, it's fantastic to actually get you on. We've known each other for years, and now actually we get together at HIMSS, exactly. which has been a couple years since the last one. So why don't you give the audience a little sense of your background? Sure. So I'm Colin Hung. I am editor at Healthcare IT Today, which is a publication that covers healthcare IT. We have a podcast that we do every two weeks called Healthcare IT Today Interviews, and I do that with my friend John Lin. And we just talk about health IT issues and the latest news and things. Of course, most people know me for our Twitter being uh, the co-host of uh, HCLDR every Tuesday night at 8.30. Yeah, it's a fantastic thing you've done. I've been on it a number of times. I always really enjoy that. So I know here at HIMSS, you've been doing a, been involved very much in patient experience and how you bring patients into the process. And you actually moderated a panel this morning at HIMSS. So tell us a little bit about patient experience and what you talked about. Yeah, sure. We, you know, we had a great panel with uh, Tanya from Ascension and Chris from Solution Reach. And basically what we were talking about was, what's the current state of patient experience? Has it gotten better, more priority, more importance because of the pandemic, or is it declined? And I think the general consensus of the, uh, of the panel was that it's 
as important now as it as it ever has been, uh, which I agree with that. But I did challenge the two of them on stage to say, well, if we gave it so such a high importance, how come the execution has been so bad <laughs> during the pandemic, especially in the early stages? And what sort of things did you, when you talk about execution, what sort of things did you see that worried you about that? Yeah, well, it, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, when we didn't know a lot, uh, the hospitals pretty much just shut down, like no visitors, no nothing. And this was, you heard the horror stories about elderly people being in the hospital all alone, you know, hooked up to a ventilator, unable to see family and friends. I mean, how, how awful an experience that would be. And then also the lack of updates from the staff to those family members because they were overwhelmed. Like, I don't blame the staff. They, they had just so many patients and they really didn't know how this virus was spreading. And so what I challenged the, the panel on was, well, you know, if, if patient experience was so important, how come we just dropped it at the beginning of the pandemic? And, and how some hospitals took a long, long time before they reinstated visiting hours, before they reinstated that you could have a loved one in the room as long as they were vaccinated or could follow these protocols and things. It just took us a lot of time to get there, a little bit longer, I think, than it could have. So I think, I think some pioneering hospitals got the, got the idea early and, and did some things. But the majority of healthcare, I think, kind of put patient experience to the back burner. So this was a classic example where telehealth sort of took off. Everybody said, oh, telehealth, the great success of digital. But I really hadn't thought about that point. We could have been using similar systems for communicating with patients. But obviously, as you point out, we dropped the ball. Yeah, like it, it took it just took a lot longer than I think any of us would have thought. It took I remember reading stories eight months after the start of the pandemic when finally people were like, OK, we can bring an iPad into the ICU and let people talk via FaceTime, even though it's not secure. I was like, well, go go figure. It didn't have to be secure because all you're doing was allowing the patient to talk to their family. There wasn't any there wasn't any uh, patient related information that was being shared over those airwaves. And so but it took so long. Like, why did it take eight months for someone to go, hey, we just put an iPad in front of somebody. So what sort of responses did you get? What were some of the answers? Well, I think, you know, the good news was I think people acknowledged that, hey, yeah, you're, you're right. We, we kind of dropped the ball a little bit at the beginning. Now, in their defense, a lot was unknown about the virus. So, you know, I, I kind of put that aside. But I think um, some smart organizations learned quickly. Um, it just was unfortunate that they didn't sort of disseminate their best practice until more groundswell came up, until more people started doing it. Then it was like, oh, yeah, like we could do these iPads. We can do the screening for people, for the one loved one to come in. They could even do it through glass. Like at least they were physically there, maybe not right next to the bed. All those things started to happen when patients started to really raise their voice and when these other hospitals just kind of showed the way and go, yeah, this can work. It didn't spread. It didn't make the situation worse. In fact, it made it better. You know, it's fascinating you mentioned that because I'm thinking back to early in the pandemic, all these people in the hospitals and you would see articles in all the newspapers. I can't see my mom or my spouse or my friend. And I guess that just didn't resonate with the healthcare system at that time to get them moving. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, it's a, it's a, it's a, chick, it's a horrible, horrible uh, thing, choice to make. Patient safety or safety of the community over the needs of an individual patient and their family. I mean, how could you even make that decision? And so I think most uh, hospitals and most facilities erred on the side of community health. And, until more was known about the virus, right? Until we knew how it was spread and how you, it really, um, you know, surface spread wasn't really a thing. Back then, at the beginning, we thought it was, right? right. So that's a, a reason why, you know, everyone was, was not allowing people to go into, one of the reasons why they weren't allowing people to go into rooms. But as we learned more, the, as, the, as the data started to come out, I think that's when people started to, re, you know, reinstate some of these things. But I gotta be honest, coming from Canada, 
it took almost a year before senior living centers in my, um, my hometown allowed visitors. A year. Now think about that. Like hospitals were allowing people to come into the ICU where people were known to be sick with COVID. And yet senior living homes in some, uh, some jurisdictions of, of, that I live near, they didn't allow visitors for almost a year. So that raised an interesting point. I'm not sure how the senior living homes function in Canada, but in the United States, obviously, you have these hospitals huh? that have a lot of funds and all kinds of money, but the senior living centers can be very much a much less revenue-generating opportunity, so they tend to not have the capabilities to even sure. think about digital health. In Canada, do you see some of that same digital health in place? or is it the same No, it's, it's very similar to what it is in the United States. They're underfunded, understaffed. They don't have the technology infrastructure to do a lot of stuff, so iPads were probably not even a thing unless a caring nurse brought it in or something like that. But I think what, what it showed, though, was let, let's do some common sense here. Like if, if patient experience is your priority or was a priority, then why not bring people in and ask them their opinion? Like I'm pretty sure families would have ponied up and go, well, you can use my iPad and I will get it disinfected <laughs> and let's put it in this plastic and then you give it to my mom and maybe we can visit that way, at least in the early parts of the pandemic. And then later we go, well, if the family member is vaccinated and the senior person is, va- is vaccinated, why can't, they ha- why can't they get together in an right. outdoor area? Like, like by then, the science was known that it does not really transmit very well outdoors. And if both parties are vaccinated, it's very safe. But they stuck to these rules, unfortunately. They said, well, we can't let a visitor's ha- visitation happen until we have 80% people vaccinated in this facility. Well, well, that poor person who got vaccinated early, like, they had to wait. And to me, that seems a little bit unfair. And it seemed a little bit disingenuous when you say, hey, we're putting a patient-centric approach, and then that's your rule, right? <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was kind of where I was driving towards. And they, they had a good answer on the, uh, on the panel to that. They, uh-huh. And so what were some of the examples of success around patient engagement or things that are critical to get that set up in your organization? Yeah, I think the the sort of obvious one um, that's happened a lot recently was the space I used to be in, which is around patient communications, right? Now it's nowadays it's everyone expects to get a reminder. Everyone expects to get instructions. I think hospitals and uh, practices have done that really well. Implement these kinds of solutions. So that's a form of patient engagement. I think that has gone very, very well. But I pointed out on the panel that sometimes we've taken it a little bit too far, right? Like a hospital, sometimes a hospital will now text a single patient about five or 10 times a day because you have different departments, each with their own system, each texting the same patient. It can be too much of a good thing. Like you can imagine mm-hmm. trying to get, decipher 10 different text messages from 10 different departments. And when I think about communications and this whole concept of obviously using text, and we did it years and years ago when we did a high-risk maternity program in Mississippi where we were actually texting the, the, the young mother said, hey, have your nurses text us. We don't answer the phone anymore. And, and I'm thinking to myself, what, what are some of the real successes that people are having with that? Are there, are there as you talk about, there are these examples where everything gets thrown out to it. But how do you ensure that the text going to the individuals actually relate to their level of literacy, their persona? Are you seeing more of that now? Yeah, like that, that, there's, there's pockets of that happening very, very well. Um, I was uh, interviewing uh, the good folks over at Duke in their smoking cessation program, and that's part of their intake, is they spend time with the patient to really understand their health literacy level, their socioeconomic status, and then they tailor their texts and their education that they send back to them to match it. 
right? So they're not going to say, oh, hey, just buy a nicotine patch if they can't <laughs> afford it, right? Like, and they, so they have other mechanisms. They go, okay, we're not going to send them that video. We're going to send them this. Or we're going to recommend this treatment because it suits them a bit more. And so that was, to me, we're starting to see that in pockets. I, I hear the same thing about diabetes management programs that are really tailoring these text messages to the situation that these people find themselves in. They're asking the question of what language do you want it in? So I think it's happening. I think there's a realization now that, you know, not everything can be in the one language. Not everything is one size fits all. So that's encouraging. And that's, a, that's some exciting parts of what's happening in patient experience right now. And you mentioned this issue of not being able to financially afford it. I heard in one of the earlier panels, they talked about so integrating that social determinants of health data. So you're seeing more of that actually happening and then integrating into this technology. I think slowly. I think, I think for, for, for one, I think uh, providers, clinicians, are starting to ask the question politely, to, to ask someone, hey, if we send you a text, do you have the capability of receiving it privately? Because maybe it's a family and shares the one phone, and, you know, or, or they can politely answer, you know, no, I don't, I don't have access to text. Okay, well, that's good, good to know. Same thing with patient portals. I think uh, physicians in particular, primary care, are starting to ask their uh, own patients to go, do you have access to stable internet or high-speed internet? And a lot of the answers can sometimes be, well, I can only get it at the library or only get that at Starbucks. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to recommend the patient portal method for you, right? I'm going to print something for you or maybe I'll do it another different, a different way for you. I think we're starting to get there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's widespread yet, but I'm starting to hear more and more stories around these kinds of questions being asked. And I think it's great. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of awkward at the beginning to ask these questions, but in the end, what you're doing is you're really tailoring the care that you're providing and the information you're providing to the situation of the patient. Mm -hmm. One of the obvious situations they talked about was having, a, having patients on your committees. Yes. And, you know, it just baffles my mind when I hear people say, oh, we're, we're getting patient input, but we bring it in ourselves to the committee. They don't actually sit on our <laughs> committee. But it's really important to get that right in the group, isn't it? Absolutely. There was a big discussion in the sessions this morning around PFACs, our patient family advisory councils. It is so important to bring patients in when you're designing your systems for patient experience. Like, what, it, no, no company would design a, a computer system without talking to users, actual users. <laughs> it baffles me that, that people would create entire processes for patients without even involving patients in the design. I think there was a fear many years ago that maybe patients would ask for the moon or they merely weren't qualified. But I think we found over the years as, as some pioneering hospitals like Cleveland Clinic and uh, like uh, 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 Hackensack Meridian in, in New Jersey, when you involve patients, it actually gets better. They are much more literate than you think they are. They are much more articulate than you think they are. They have very, very good ideas of how to improve your processes and workflows. And so I think slowly over time, we're breaking down that stereotype or perception that patients really don't know what they're asking about. It turns out they know exactly how to fix it. And if you just listen to them, your systems would be much better. You know, there was a fascinating example that just kind of hit me in, this, in the side of my head like a brick, which, which is, you know, frustrating for me to say, well, God, that really stunned me, but they're right on target, with somebody talking about designing the rooms and then saying, having somebody with a wheelchair say, well, that access, the way you built that may not work. Have you ever thought about getting in a wheelchair and trying to go in and out of a room and experience what that's like? And that just was amazing to think that through. That's right on target. Yeah, exactly. And 
again, like we, we, there are so many different types of patients. You just mentioned one. Like, what about the folks who are in wheelchairs? What about people who who have to take five buses to get to your office? What about the person who can and has ready access to cameras and stable internet? Like, there are so many different kinds of patients. So. That's the other thing that we're learning now is not, not all patients are created equal. You need as much of a representation as you can. And that's hard. I, admittedly, it's hard. But first step, yes, definitely get a patient involved when you're designing anything that's patient-facing. And if you're just tuning in, this is a special edition of Pop Health Week recorded live at HIMSS 2021 in Las Vegas. Our guest is Colin Hong, Chief Marketing Officer and Editor at Healthcare Scene. Colin also serves as host and co-moderator of the popular tweet chat, Healthcare Leaders, also known as hashtag HCLDR. And have you seen any really cool examples that you thought, wow, that really is a neat way to get work that through and bring in that patient experience? Well, I think, first of all, there's lots of online ways that we've discovered over the last year. With COVID, you couldn't have a real committee meeting. So I think one of the great things about going uh, remote is that you can have a Zoom meeting. And patients love that because they could be at home. They didn't have to come in or travel, especially if they are immunocompromised. This is perfect. So I think we've discovered new ways to engage people electronically, which I think is going to be pretty exciting. So having PFAC meetings that are virtual, uh, having larger committees with patients maybe from different parts of the country even, right, uh, or larger catchment areas. Because before, when you had a PFAC, you're pretty limited by geography. They had to be able to get there. But now, with, like, with uh, Zoom and everything like that, now you could have people from a much, much wider catchment area come and be part of your advisory committees. Right. In essence, with that, you've solved the geographic issues, but we also have this whole issue, sort of the redlining of access to Internet services. So obviously that's something else that we still need to work on in terms of bringing all the communities in all these various countries into the digital age. Yeah, and we, we talked about that on a recent HCLDR chat with this last digital last mile. It's funny because we, when, when the internet first uh, came about, we, we talked about it a lot, this, this whole thing about the lack of um, broadband access in the rural areas or even in some urban areas where just broadband access wasn't readily available or too expensive. But as we got more cell phones, as we got you know, 4G, now 5G coverage, that sort of all went away. But it's still a problem. It, you, know, you go to some areas and you just go, I can't, I don't have a stable signal or it's extremely expensive to get broadband out here so they don't have it. And yet we've, you ask anybody who lives in a city right now and go, How, have you thought about that population? The answer is no, because we just assume everyone has this. Like it's become so ingrained in our fabric that we don't even think about you know, this whole problem of the last mile of internet access anymore. So mm-hmm. I think we have to definitely think about that, especially as we, we talk about access to care. Mm-hmm. And I think this pandemic has shown that, yeah, unfortunately, the people who don't have access are some of the people who have the highest needs. And so we've got we to gotta figure out a way to get, get to them. And do you see that similar in Canada as to the issues we have in the U.S. about that? Or maybe they're better yeah. in Canada? I don't know. <laughs> you would think that with a universal health care system, we would have pretty good access. But the answer is, even though we have the right to access, the practicality of access is still a bit of a challenge. Like, Internet is still a challenge in rural parts of of, of Canada, there are some areas where it's almost impossible to, to get a cell phone signal. So, yeah, it's still it's still an issue, even though we have a single payer up in Canada. And it is a rather large country, I will say. <laughs> Canada's pretty big. It is. It is very very large. Yeah. yeah, most of it's covered in water and ice. But um, uh-huh. yeah, no, it's it's 
it's hard and and it's the same challenge like how do you get how do you get it there like do you run wires and or do you do you somehow put a doctor up there it's 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 not an easy thing to crack uh-huh. one of the other issues is that comes up a lot when you begin to look at these and you say okay where might that issue really impact individuals is around pharmaceuticals ability to fill prescriptions understand the meds you're taking etc are you seeing any innovation in that area yeah there's been a lot i mean especially with um the prevalence of smartphones and stuff. We, we saw a couple of years ago a rash of uh, startups that were doing the whole take a picture of the pill and it would identify it or take a picture of the, of the pill bottle and then it would remind you when and how to take them and answer questions that you may have about it. I think those were all a good start. But where I'm more excited now in some innovations is actually connecting the pharmacists into this digital world, right? And so now instead of like emailing your doctor or asking questions of your doctor, you can ask your pharmacist. And these, these systems and apps out there connect you with your local pharmacy. They can answer the questions. They know you, right, because they're part of the local community as well. I think that to me is sort of where a lot of more of the innovation is happening these days around medication. And uh, I think it's great. And obviously, pharmacists have always been one of those more highly trusted voices in the healthcare system. So it would make sense that individuals would better respond to them as they message them or text them. Yeah, but they were untapped. Like, you know, we we, we talk about patient innovation and patient experience. We always seem to focus on the clinicians, like the the ones at the provider organizations. But there's all these other parts of healthcare's ecosystem that we haven't really tapped into. Pharmacists being being one of them, nurse practitioners being another. We're underutilizing them. So I'm, I'm just I'm very happy and excited to see these companies get out there with technologies that connect these parts of, of healthcare to patients. And are you seeing that more through third-party vendors? Is that coming in through payers or through the pharmaceutical companies or all of the above? Well, I can't speak to the pharma companies too much, mm-hmm. but... But yeah, I'm seeing a lot of vendors do this. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a company that I I, uh, I work with in Canada, a company named Medicist, uh-huh. and they uh, make a to make a platform that connects allows pharmacies to connect with their local communities, and it's you know you can do everything from order re- renewals, but also you can like oh I need some uh, you know some consumables I can you know stuff off the shelf I can order that too and then I can just go to the pharmacy pick that up, or I can connect. And ask questions with my pharmacist via the app securely. I can ask a question. It's asynchronous. And the pharmacist will respond. I can take a picture of, I'm not really sure what this pill was. Can you remind me? You filled it. Which one is it? And the pharmacist will respond, right? So you can imagine, like, this is helping to prevent uh, unnecessary ED visits. This is really helping that patient stay at home longer. I mean, there's a ton of benefits here. And this is just being done from a company that's just connecting these two parties together via an app. Uh Yeah, I mean, that whole adherence issue is so critical, particularly for the individuals with chronic illnesses. You know, we know what the adherence rates are to, to prescription, both taking it and refilling your prescriptions and how important that is. So as they do this... Um, are there in, is it with individual pharmacists at the pharmacy, yeah. or is it a call center pharmacist, no, or how does that work? Yeah, it's individual pharmacies, right? Because mm-hmm. you know a lot of this is not what the big chains like. The, they're mm-hmm. focusing medicine in particular is focusing on the independent physician, uh, independent pharmacies that are dotted around the country, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's a great place to start. The big chains they have like Walgreens and CVS, they have systems that do this, but again, like. They can do it with their urban, like where they have centers. But in those rural areas, it's the local pharmacists that we don't know, right? And, and 
what platform do they have? And so I think there's technologies and companies out there that are really trying to look at that space and go, let's connect them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're going to see some exciting things over the next little bit. Yeah, and if you think about some of these rural communities where the, you will have an independent pharmacist out there, they're a person in the community. Right. They know the people, et cetera. So it's a great way for them to then connect and get that information. And I can imagine, you know, back in the day, if, if some of that stuff would have been available, gosh, what we could have done in some of these disease management programs, obviously now that you can integrate it. Are they then integrating that information into other systems? Yeah, like they, you can... Uh, they, they can integrate it back into an EHR, your primary care doc, and all that kind of stuff. So that is possible. I don't think it's happening yet because I think there's still the barrier of, well, do I even want this information? and how, Where do I store it when it gets into the EHR? But the point is at least it's now being captured electronically. Uh -huh. And I know just from the few pharmacists I've spoken to in particular, they're, they're really, really going after it. They're really liking this because it gets them more involved with their patients and their community. Well, that's, that's a, a neat example. What else was discussed this morning in your sessions? Any other unique ideas that came through? I think there was really more of uh, some ideas around, like, what can we do practically tomorrow to, to improve patient experience? Because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're still dealing with multiple waves. Who knows how long we're going to be living in this type of world? And so if you say, you know, you're going to be patient-centric, if you say you're going to uh, put a priority on patient experience, the question I asked of the panel was, you know, well, what can we do? And the, the, simple, the answer was so simple. Was, let's just get them, you know, we talked about it earlier, Fred. Let's just get them involved. Like, like look, at, look at your projects that you're working on right now with the lens of does this impact patients and get them involved. So that was one piece, I think, that was reiterated uh, over and over again. And then we recently just finished a session around SDOH mm -hmm. and just how, that, how you need to incorporate that thinking into your design. So as much as we think talk about patients, we also have to think about economic status. We have to talk about education levels. And working that into the design of your systems and workflows really, really can make a difference in terms of how effective you are in your community, mm -hmm. which was really enlightening to hear uh, Abner Mason talk about that kind of stuff around, you know, when you're able to factor in this inclusive design, you're actually making your product and your service that much more uh, readily available to your community. Mm -hmm. um, anyway. And maybe you could give our audience a sense of who Abner Mason is. Yeah, so Abner Mason, so I know him from Twitter, uh -huh. uh, but he's uh, with a company called uh, Consejo. Consejo uh, Sano. Yeah, I can have, yeah. I've asked him that as a name, but yes, Consejo Sano. Uh, so he's with that company, which really helps organizations incorporate SDOH into their designs. Uh, and he's a fantastic advocate, always talking about how we need to bridge that last mile as he mm -hmm. calls it, the last mile of economic and, and economic status and classes that we still have. Mm -hmm. So with the last two minutes or so we have, what excites you the most about what you're doing and the work you're looking at and seeing out in the healthcare system? <laughs> I gotta say what's excited me the most in this last 18 months is that we have proven to ourselves in healthcare that when it, when it comes down to it, we can make change happen very quickly. Everyone has talked about for years how healthcare was slow and it's like molasses and no one likes change, <laughs> right? Well, then lo and behold, a pandemic hit and all of a sudden we implemented telehealth in a matter of days. We revamped workflows in a matter of hours. We made rapid changes to the way we did and treated patients in hours. So we proved to ourselves that when there's the right impetus, and I hope it's not another pandemic, but that we can change. And it's not horrible, right? And some of the things that we've done because of COVID are actually good things. So I'm hoping that the le what gets me excited is 
all the lessons that we've taught ourselves over the last 18 months, I hope we can carry those forward. That's fantastic to think about. And I, I, th- I think you're right. You know, we've seen the shift to telehealth. It's going to drop a bit, but it's staying with us. That's for the future. And obviously, this patient experience piece is another critical one. Why don't you spend just a minute before we close talk about your show? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we have a podcast. It's called, uh, like I said, Healthcare IT Today. Uh, there's two podcasts that we have. One is the Interviews Podcast, and that's where we just do interviews like we're doing here. We talk uh-huh. to people, ask them questions. And then there's a podcast that it's just John and I, and we kind of mimic ourselves or uh, model ourselves after sports uh, talk shows. <laughs> and we just talk about the industry. We talk about what's, what's hot, what, what topics are happening, what technologies we're excited about. And so both those shows, you can find them at healthcareittoday.com under our podcast list. And, yeah, we'd love you to listen. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Colin. It's a pleasure to get you on Pop Health Week. Uh, thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. And back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word for today's special edition broadcast of Pop Health Week, recorded live at HIMSS 2021 in Las Vegas. For more information on Colin's work, go to www.hcldr.org and do follow him on Twitter via at Colin, C-O-L-I-N underscore Hung, H-U-N-G. For Healthcare Now Radio's lineup of live and on-demand podcasts, including Pop Health Week, go to www.healthcarenowradio.com. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice and do follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. Bye now.